and welcome to This Week Explained. I am Tiana. And I'm Curtis. <laughs> Today we will be discussing the big geopolitical events of the week. How has your week been so far, aside from you? Well, you don't have to ask. The, I... the obvious enthusiasm <laughs> that you are experiencing. Definitely enthusiastic. Yeah, let me think about this. Why would you be excited? Perhaps it's because the second episode of Insightful Inquiries is coming out on Sunday. Perhaps it's, it's either that or the destruction of the free world. So we'll see at the end of the podcast if we can figure it out. But yes. Yes. Okay. So in case you guys didn't pick up on it, like we've been teasing it for a while, but we have the second episode of Insightful Inquiries coming out on Sunday. And who would is the poor, unwitting victim <laughs> of your ridiculous questions. I'm just kidding. Well, for, uh, for this one, it was the one, the only, Gary Nessner, retired FBI hostage negotiator. But more importantly, yeah. his book, Stalling for Time, yep. My Life as an FBI Hostage Negotiator, was used for the miniseries, the Emmy Award-winning miniseries. <laughs> Waco. And there's some some updates to that as well, but you're going to have to listen to Insightful Inquiries because we do a, a deep dive, not into Waco, yeah. but into just hostage negotiation. And it gives a little teaser for what's going on in the future. That's all I care about. <laughs> it is a, I've listened to it 20 times. Yeah, he has it. And it is an excellent, excellent interview. Gary is a wonderful person. He is a great person to interview. He's very excited. That's what has taken up our week. Yeah. So that's me on Sunday. What about you? Me? Um, I've cooked dinner. Delicious dinners. That's literally it, guys. <laughs> That's literally all I've been doing. So let's get into what has been going on this week because it is a lot. So what is on your radar? Well, like you said, it, it there is a lot going on this week. So we're going to continue to talk with about Russia. Uh, gonna we, we're we're going to go into uh, Poland supporting Ukraine. Uh, there was one year ago there was a coup in Myanmar, and they are having protests to. Uh, talk about that last year coup. There is Mexico, which has a problem with killing journalists. Uh, Japan called out China on human rights violations. Uh, if you remember last week, we talked about the Burkina Faso coup, where the African Union has suspended Burkina Faso. What? Suspend. Well, we're going to get into suspend a country. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and staying in Africa, uh, Mali has ordered the France ambassador to leave the country. Um, we've also got uh, India wanting tech companies to do more about fake news. And then our history's mysteries for this week. We're going to talk about the slave who spied. Honestly, nobody blames them. I, d I don't even know like the background of it yet, but I feel like. Well, this is going to be a running February, the history's mysteries, because it is Black, Black history, history Month. Yeah. And so we want to highlight the African-Americans uh, and the African people across the globe yeah. who have really been the, the, the forefront of intelligence analysis. And that starts this week with the spy, the slave who spied. Oh. 
But first, I would like to quickly discuss the news out of Syria. I'm sure everybody has heard this. Uh, there was a midnight raid by special U.S. Special Operations Forces that uh, they launched to what we call in the industry capture kill, which is you're either going to capture or if all things fall apart, you will have to kill the leader of the Islamic State. Now, early reporting out of Syria discussed a possible drone attack on the building, but that information was dismissed as reporters learned the ISIS leader, Abu Ibrahim, had detonated a bomb, killing himself as well as at least 13 people in the compound. And that is to include six children. And I'm also finding out four women. It is a it's a terrible tragedy. Now, all the reporting right now is still being verified as We all know the U.S. has a history of inconsistencies in its review of allegations of civilian casualties. The most recent case being a mistaken drone strike in Kabul on August 29th that killed 10 civilians, including seven children. So once we learn more about the raid, with hopefully some inside reporting, we will update this story. But now we can get into the meat and potatoes of this episode. All right, baby, hit me with that Russia-Ukraine update. Well, it's been a wild week with Russia. So on Monday, the United Nations Security Council met to discuss the situation, but quickly adjourned after two hours of debate with no resolution. The meeting was requested by the United States, and at first, Russia and China tried to block the session by calling for a vote among the Security Council's 15 member states. Russia and China opposed it. India, Gabon, and Kenya abstained from voting, and the other 10 countries voted to move ahead with it. Well, the U.S. only needed nine votes for the session to convene. Well, what did they talk about in the session? Well, first, uh, Russia accused the West of whipping up tensions over Ukraine. They also said the U.S. had brought pure Nazis to power in Ukraine. Now, the U.S. blamed Russia for amassing the largest military mobilization in Europe in decades, as well as increasing cyber attacks and misinformation in the region. Now, after the session, U.S. officials claimed the Russian government sent a written response to the U.S. proposal aimed at de-escalating the crisis. A State Department official declined to offer details of the response, saying that it would be unproductive to negotiate in public and that they would leave it up to Russia to discuss the counterproposal. However, Russia denied sending a response on tensions with Ukraine and said that the response was more for other reasons. Oh. The Russian ambassador, Vasily Nebenzia, accused the U.S. of interfering in his country's internal affairs and seeking, quote-unquote, a classic example of megaphone diplomacy. And it's now time for a discussion in public. They want us to be more subtle like they are when they interfere with elections, you know? So will the U.N. do anything in response to actions by the U.S. or Russia? They won't, and here's why. Okay. Both nations have veto power within the U.N. Security Council, so any actions would be vetoed by either nation. Okay, then, so what is next? Well, next is the Olympics and Team USA versus Team Russia in a curling face-off. Stop trying to make curling a thing <laughs> what's the best sport for ever every olympics he's obsessed with curling okay so now after the olympics what can we expect well uh only putin knows and i want to say something before we go any further yep 
Deanna and I are both Americans. What? Just kidding. I signed up and pledged to uphold the Constitution of the United States against all enemies. And that's the lens through which I see geopolitics. But we've also both traveled to Russia. What? Yes. <laughs> we met so many fantastic people. We really did. And it is one of the more enjoyable places we've been to. I'm not going to denigrate the people of Russia. Ksenia is listening. I miss you. <laughs> I'm also not going to play the bad guys versus good guys. I'm just reporting the news. Do I have an American bias? For sure. Absolutely. Will I protect the United States when they do the wrong thing? No. I'll be on this podcast reporting the bad decisions. I do not want my prediction to come true. But what I'm seeing right now on the border with Ukraine is far more advanced than anything Russia has done in decades to include the annexation of Crimea. If any officials in the U.S., U.K., Europe, Russia, etc. are listening, please find common ground and save the people of Europe from the worst crisis since Hitler invaded Poland. Really well said. Um, and I guess a nice segue into what Poland has done for the Ukraine. Yeah, it is a good segue. And <laughs> Poland is in no mood to see a Russian invasion of Ukraine because they know they'd be next. So a decision was made to supply the Ukrainian side with defensive munitions. Poland also stated they will provide Ukraine with any help to supply the country with humanitarian and military needs. Also, Poland will be involved in a trilateral alliance with Ukraine and the United Kingdom. The Polish prime minister said this week, quote, living close to a neighbor like Russia, we have the feeling of living at the foot of a volcano. Like in Tonga? Like in Tonga. Which would be a disaster. Yeah. And he's also called on Germany to not start the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, saying it posed grave security risks. He said standing up to Russia was not only important for Ukraine, but for all of Europe and NATO. Now, the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, went on to accuse Russian President Vladimir Putin of trying to undermine the post-Cold War European order. That's some tough talk from the UK. Sounds like some pretty good progress, though. Um, indeed it is, but muddying the waters a bit is Ukrainian President Zelensky, who earlier this week said we should not focus on the intelligence from the West and that there's no threat to Ukraine as of yet. He also called on the West to avoid creating panic as Russia tensions simmer. Talk about a 180. Yeah, that's so there is a term I like to use in this context, that word being compromised. We talked last week how UK intelligence had, has observed the Russian government planning to implement a pro-Kremlin government in Kiev. Last week, Zelensky and U.S. President Joe Biden had a phone conversation. Some officials said did not go well. Well, do we know anything about this conversation? So uh, officially, not entirely, uh, but Is some officially. Yeah, uh, because Ukrainian officials have spoken on the condition they remain anonymous. And they have said President Biden was adamant a full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine is imminent, while President Zelensky cautioned the U.S. president on harsh dialogue that could provoke Russia in an attack. Here's where I discuss the bad decisions by the U.S. Oh. It really feels to me like the United States wants to sit this one out. On the surface, that seems smart. 
isolate yourself and do just enough behind the scenes to remain somewhat neutral. Yeah. But a war in Europe will involve NATO. Yeah. And the U.S. will have to be a part of that as a NATO member. Yeah. Tough talk is obviously not working and it never will. So sanctions, they aren't working. But we will see what happens when new sanctions singling out individuals within Putin's inner circle will do anything to de-escalate the situation. So far, like I said, they haven't helped. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Okay, then, well, we will obviously keep up with this. Let's move on to Myanmar. What is going on there? Well, last February, a military leader seized control of Myanmar in a coup that reversed any hope the country would become a functioning democracy under former leader Aung San Suu Kyi. After ordering a brutal crackdown on anti-coup protests, the self-appointed prime minister is attempting to bring an unwilling population under his control Uh as problems plaguing the country become more severe. Millions in the country are unemployed, while while food and fuel prices are rising. Poverty is growing, and the country's education, healthcare, and banking sectors are collapsing, raising questions about what last year's coup has achieved. What is going on this week, though? Well, this week, the people of Myanmar have planned a quote unquote silent strike across the country to mark the one year anniversary. Residents were urged to stay indoors and businesses to close their doors. The military, however, has warned it will arrest anyone who protests with sedition, or terrorism. More than 400,000 people have been displaced in fighting across the country since the coup, with most of them fleeing across the border to India or Thailand. Military atrocities from Myanmar include a massacre on Christmas Eve, where at least 35 bodies were found burned beyond recognition, including two staff members with an international aid group Save the Children. Another mass killing was reported in January, where 10 villagers were found, their bodies gagged and blindfolded, according to the Chin Human Rights Organization. Now, the local advocacy group Assistance Association for Political Prisoners has documented 1,503 people killed by troops since February 1st of last year, and an additional 11,838 people arrested, with widespread reports of abuse, torture, and extrajudicial killings. Gosh, that is a Horrible tragedy. It really is. Now, the anti-coup resistance group, known as the Spring Revolution, has caught the military off guard by its strength and determination. Many people are donating what little money they have to the resistance, and initiatives as well as residents have refused to pay their electricity bills as a way to avoid giving money to the regime. Is there any hope at all for a quick resolution? Well, unfortunately, no. After a year of conflict, hope that the UN Security Council or other international actors will intervene in Myanmar has all but evaporated. Last year, the US, UK, and Canada imposed sanctions on Myanmar's military leaders, but members of the resistance say it is not enough. 
They say that if international bodies fail to take action, Myanmar's situation is likely to get worse in the next year. Oh, gosh. Hopefully that isn't the case and the conflict can be resolved in order to return to Myanmar. Um, did you say Mexico is killing drugs? <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did, but I'm going to clarify. And I apologize. I'm really not good at segueing between news topics, but yeah. But it's still a good one. I know, but we're like leaping yeah. <laughs> to like that's okay. So anyways, what is going on in Mexico? So let me clarify. It's not the government of Mexico that's executing journalists. This week, a journalist with an online news outlet was preparing to record a video interview when he was shot by assailants. That makes him the fourth journalist killed in less than a month in Mexico. His outlet was covering a number of complex issues in the country, like three indigenous communities that are working towards a self-government, organized crime and illegal logging and corruption in local government. So did the government do it or at least sanction the killings? Well, that's always a tough one to verify. Uh, and that's globally because governments are extremely secretive. Oh, what? Yeah. No way. <laughs> but a spokesman for the Mexican government said via Twitter, we will work together with the state and municipal governments to clear up the case. We will not allow impunity. We defend freedom of expression and the right of information. The government also says that over 50 journalists have been slain in Mexico since December of 2018. They must know who the people are behind these murders, though, right? Well, if they do, they aren't saying anything. The Interior Undersecretary Alejandro Encianas has said that more than 90% of murders of journalists and human rights defenders remain unsolved. That's in spite of a government system meant to protect them. Also, a New York-based committee to protect journalists has put that number at 95%. I guess we should caution some people about traveling to Mexico, probably if you're a journalist. Yeah, <laughs> or at least what places are safe and how to travel safely. Yeah. So I guess the blog post? Oh, well. Maybe. Hey, maybe. We'll see. That would be a fun read or informative. Not necessarily fun, informative. Can we move to the Pacific region? Well, yeah, let's do that. Okay. So this week, mm -hmm. Japan's parliament adopted a resolution on the serious human rights violations in China and asked the government to take steps to relieve the situation. Japan has decided to follow the U.S. in a diplomatic boycott of the Winter Olympics in Beijing. And since taking office in October, the prime minister has said that Japan would not mince words with China when necessary. Okay, well, can I make a prediction before hearing the rest of this story? Yeah, go ahead. I'd love to hear this. China did not approve of the resolution and probably also accused Japan of human rights violations. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. That was pretty easy. Yeah. So, so here's actually the what happened. China's foreign ministry said in a statement that the resolution ignored the facts maliciously slandered China's human rights situation, violated international law and basic norms governing international relations, grossly interfered in China's inner internal affairs, and is extremely egregious in nature. As well, they said when Japan launched a war against other countries, it committed countless human rights violations and crimes. You certainly did. <laughs> 
But at least the U.S. is aligned with Japan. In December, the U.S. government signed into law legislation that bans imports from China's Xinjiang region over concerns about forced labor among the Uyghurs. Well, I'm sure there will be many future updates, especially after the Olympics. So let's continue and discuss Burkina Faso from last week. Are there any updates? Yes, there are. The African Union has suspended Burkina Faso a week after the Burkinabi army announced the removal of President Rob Kabore. Is this the first time they've suspended a country within the African Union? It's not even the first time they've done it within the past 18 months. Oh, okay. So they previously suspended and enforced sanctions against Mali and Guinea, where coups have taken place recently. Oh, okay, okay. And the African Union Commission chairman had already condemned the coup shortly after it happened on January 23rd. Before the AU suspension, the Economic Community of West African States suspended Burkina Faso from its ranks and warned of possible sanctions pending the outcome of meetings with the coup makers. The groups are holding a summit in Accra to assess the situation and to see whether they should impose more sanctions. So not a very peaceful update. Hopefully next week there will be a better update to the situation. But now, staying in Africa, what is happening with France and Mali? Well, Mali's coup leaders ordered France's ambassador to leave the West African country this week. So why is Mali so upset with France? Well, there's a, a number of reasons. We discussed it last week. Uh, some of those reasons about colonization and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But most importantly... France drew anger of Mali's coup leadership when they said in June that it was a mistake to allow the leader of Mali's coup to become president after he deposed the civilian transitional leaders. France said it's a bad sign to African neighbors. This is an important issue as Russia's Wagner Group has aligned itself with the coup leadership and could make a play for Africa's rich resources, much like China is doing in the region. Mm -hmm. Also, the Wagner Group has been accused of ruthless human rights violations in the Central African Republic and Libya. But only time will tell which direction the Western Sahel goes in its fight against terrorism. All right, well, let's move on and discuss India, where we have a surprisingly growing audience. Indeed. And thank you all for listening. So this week... Indian officials have held heated discussions with Google, Twitter, and Facebook for not proactively removing what they described as fake news on their platforms. It's beginning to look like no country is safe from fake news. No one. No one is safe. And this is why we're in talks with some highly educated individuals on a plan to curb fake news. Now, we aren't close yet, but hopefully something develops in the future. But let's do a deep dive into what's going on in India. Let's do it. India's Ministry of Information and Broadcasting strongly criticized the companies and said their inaction on fake, on fake news was forcing the Indian government to order content takedowns. However, that drew immediate international criticism that India is suppressing free expression. Well, what kind of content are they specifically worried about? So specifically, they quote anti-India well, content. Pro- we are very pro-India. <laughs> And 
So that was being spread by accounts based in the neighboring country of Pakistan. Oh, okay. So how is the relationship between India and Pakistan? Well, here we'll do a deep dive again. Oh, let's do it. Relations between the two countries have been sort of complex and largely hostile due to a number of historical events. Of course. So this all stems from the 1947 British partition of India into what is today the Republic of India and the Islamic Republic of Pakistan, as well as the People's Republic of Bangladesh. India emerged as a secular nation with a Hindu majority, while Pakistan emerged with a Muslim majority population. Soon after gaining their independence, India and Pakistan attempted to establish diplomatic relations, but the violent partition and reciprocal territorial claims quickly overshadowed their relationship. Since their independence, two countries have fought three major wars, as well as one undeclared war, and have been involved in numerous armed skirmishes and military standoffs. In 2015, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi made a brief, unscheduled visit to Pakistan while en route to India, becoming the first Indian Prime Minister to visit Pakistan since 2004. Oh, wow. However, relations between the countries have remained tense following repeated acts of cross-border terrorism. So according to polls, about 5% of Indians view Pakistan's influence positively, while 11% of Pakistanis view India's influence positively. So there's a lot of work to be done to improve diplomatic relations in the region. It's a definite understatement. Is it that time? Have we arrived at Maybe. Whatever could you be talking about? Yes, it is. On Black History Month. Yes, every week in February, we will highlight the great African-American men and women who spied for a nation who at one time didn't even consider them citizens. Which is, I'm trying not hard not to curse right now. Oh, we will. We could do a deep dive into the just the awful things that were done. But I don't think we need to do that. I think they, you know, everybody already knows. That's true. You make a very good point. So this week, we will discuss James Armistead Lafayette, who was born into slavery around 1760 and lived most of his life on a plantation in New Kent, Virginia. Okay. So Armistead enlisted in the Marquis de Lafayette's French Allied units. The army then shipped Armistead to the British side as a spy, playing the role of a runaway slave where he attempted to gain access to General Cornwallis's headquarters. So because Armistead was a slave and also a native Virginian with extensive knowledge of the terrain, the British received him without suspicion. As a result, Armistead accomplished what few spies at the time could, direct access to the center of the British War Department. Yes. So after successfully infiltrating British intelligence, Armistead floated freely between the British and American camps. As a double agent, he relayed critical information to Lafayette and misleading intel to the enemy. Oblivious to his true intentions, the British assigned Armistead to work under the notorious turncoat Benedict Arnold. Oh, that guy. By helping Arnold maneuver his troops through Virginia, Armistead gained significant insight into the Redcoats' movements. Between Agent 355 and now James Armistead, it is no wonder that Benedict Arnold's treason was easily identified. He doesn't seem to be a very good decision maker. He really was. 
And you know what? He also seems to be easily manipulated, which could be in part why the British were able to convince Arnold to join their side in the first place. Absolutely. But now I want to get into the more infuriating aspect of James Armistead's story. So though many Americans celebrated freedom throughout the United States at the end of the war, James Armistead was forced to return to life as a slave. Okay. His status as a spy meant that he did not benefit from the Act of 1783, which emancipated any slave soldiers that fought for the revolution. My gosh. As a result, Armistead began the process of petitioning Congress to fight for his freedom. After several years without success, he received help from an old friend, the Marquis de Lafayette. He's French. Upon learning that Armistead remained enslaved, Lafayette wrote a letter to Congress on his behalf. He received his release from slavery in 1787. Armistead would go on to add Lafayette to his name as a token of gratitude to the French general. And we also saw the key that was presented to George Washington from the Marquis de Lafayette. That's so infuriating that he had to work that hard to get... That should have never happened. Oh, it shouldn't have. First of all, it's really upsetting that he had to work that hard to get his freedom. That's infuriating. He put his life on the line for a country that did not give a crap about him. But I'm glad that somebody was in his corner and helped him achieve what he needed to achieve. Not that it resulted in any great... I mean, I mean, obviously, he's not slave anymore, but you know he's still treated. Like it shouldn't a, have taken years for him to do that. He's still treated like a like a subhuman. Oh yeah. Even though he wasn't a slave anymore, because that's the way people thought. And oh, okay, sorry. All right. <laughs> Is there anything else for this week? Well, after that very depressing and infuriating story, I think we are out of time for this week. Well, as always, if you like this show, please try to tell at least one person about us. We can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, if you have a moment, head over to Apple and Spotify Podcasts and give us a five-star review because those help us get noticed by thousands of podcast listeners globally. And as always, if you would like in-depth coverage of these stories and more, please subscribe to our community at oakwindanalytics.com. Tina, thank you so much. And until next week, stay safe out there.